Our reading from God's Holy Word this morning is taken from the Gospel according to John, chapter 1, verse 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. The Gospel of our Lord. Praise be to you, o Christ. Please be seated. What is a gospel? I like to ask my college students that. I actually like to ask them that and what is an epistle, what is an apostle, what is a disciple. Many of them have grown up in churches, and they have heard those terms over and over and over again, and yet even those who claim to be Christian often cannot actually tell you what the terms mean. I have, in fact, had a student tell me that an epistle was probably the wife of the apostles, because similar words, um, and they can't define grace or many words that actually are the very lifeblood of the scriptures. But the term gospel, I have never had a student actually be able to tell me what it is. They know that the first four books of the Bible in the New Testament are gospels. But what is it? Well, it's a good question, actually. As you know, the term gospel means good news, And the four first books of the New Testament are about the good news in that they are about Jesus the Christ. He himself is the good news. There is nothing about Jesus the Christ that isn't the good news. And these books are a 
effectively biographies of Jesus. But that's not really a fair way to categorize them because they're not written exactly the way modern biographies are written. In a modern biography, you start with perhaps the backstory of a man's parents, you move into his birth, and you follow chronologically through his life, ultimately leading to his death if he happens to be dead. The Gospels kind of follow that pattern, but not, not fully and totally. A number of the Gospels don't start with his birth, for instance. Uh, they are not chronologically ordered perfectly. They are, in fact, topically oriented, all of them, to one degree or another. That doesn't mean that when you read in the Gospel and you hear things like, now on the third day Jesus went there, it's not true. Or if the Gospel says, now you know, Jesus did this and then after that he did this, that that's not true. But the writers of the Gospels have arranged their material in such a way as to make their point, and a lot of the arrangement is topical. You can see this in the Gospel of Matthew, for instance. If you have one of those wretched Bibles that make the words of Jesus read, which you don't need because the words of Jesus are not more special than the rest of the words of Jesus, which are all the other words, But if you have one and you flip through the Gospel of Matthew, you will see a pattern develop. You'll see a block of black and then a very large block of red and then a very large block of black and then a very large block of red. And this repeats over five times because Matthew has topically arranged it so. You have historical events in the life of Jesus that adhere topically and then you have a very large block of teaching And you go back to events and then teaching, and Matthew has arranged his material topically. Uh, It is broadly chronological. It does start with his birth, and it does end with the resurrection after his death. But along the way, Matthew is making specific points, and the, the arrangement is for that. What the Gospels most closely represent is a character sketch. These are modern kinds of writings, and they're not strictly biographical. They are designed to get at the very essence of a person and truly understand their nature, and they're usually written in a topical topical format. All of our Gospels are, in fact, that way. They are character sketches of Jesus of Nazareth And they all approach Jesus of Nazareth from a different point of view, not a uh, clashing point of view. There's no contradiction in them, but the point of view is uh, different for each one. I often ask my students, if somebody were to write a book about you, uh, would they all, if, you know, people who knew you, would they all write a book very similarly? If your mom wrote a book about you, would it be the same as, say, if your fiancé wrote a book about you? And they will generally say, no, it would come out very different, but it would still be me, and they would, they would know me, and they would tell the truth about me, and very profoundly tell the truth about me, because they know me intimately, 
but it would be different because they have a different point of view. Well, the four Gospels are very much like that. In the 2nd century AD, in the area of Syria, there arose a writing called the Diatessaron. And the Diatessaron, the, the name means out of four, and what it was was the church in the area of Syria felt, we want to have a running narrative of the life of Jesus Christ. We, we want something that would be a biography. And so they took the four Gospels and they wove them together into a seamless narrative that they saw as a chronological uh, life of Christ. But the Diatessaron died out. I have one in English. Uh, It's a recreation of it. It takes the New International Version and does the same thing that they did with it. But it died out. It did not remain in use in the church because the, the shepherds of the church, God's called ministry, recognize that if you weave them all together like that, doesn't exactly have the same meaning as what the original four writers intended. They wanted you to have their material in such a way that their specific points were made. And you can, you can make a chronology of the life of Christ from the four Gospels, but when you really weave them together like that, you actually create some error because the way one writer is using a phrase and the way another writer is using a phrase, if you weave them together, it looks like it's the same usage and it's not in a lot of places. So the church has historically had four character sketches of her Lord, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it is from them primarily we have a a window into the life of the man, Jesus of Nazareth. Three of them are called synoptics. That's another term I like to ask my students about, and they have no idea what that means either. Uh, Just out of curiosity, anyone want to answer what the term synoptic means? Going once, going twice. The term synoptics means speaking as one. And if you are familiar with the New Testament, if you've read it to any length of time, you will know that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, though they are uniquely different in their own way, they are not the same book in any way, uh, they're a lot more same than the Gospel of John. They cover often the same ground. They often have the same teaching in them. Um, Liberals tend to look at the synoptics and say, this is more historical than John. Uh, There's not a whole lot of reason for that, except that there is more material there. But they look at the Gospel of John and say, well, this is a very different kind of book. Uh, It covers very different ground, so this must be an imaginative retelling of Jesus of Nazareth. 
Well, there are reasons why the synoptics are what they are, and there are reasons why John is what John is. To discover what those are, we ought to look at the contrast between them. In the synoptics, you have Jesus teaching in parables. A parable is a, a, a story that comes out of real life, but has a spiritual point to the story. And just as an aside, a parable would not be a true way to teach unless God had in fact encoded into the natural world order the meaning that the teacher is giving. Jesus in the synoptics will say, a sower went out to sow, and he threw the seed on the ground and the, the seed would fall on four different types of soil. The seed would all be the same, but the soils would be different. And what happened with the seed would depend upon the soil. Some of the soil is so packed and hard because it's the path that people walk on that it never penetrates in any way. And the birds of the air come and gather the seed because it never goes in the ground uh, some seed falls on shallow soil. It looks like it, it's going to live, but it's really not any more good soil than the packed earth, really. It grows up really quick because it's shallow, but then it dies overnight, and it, it's like it wasn't really there, and it really wasn't from any sort of pragmatic point of view. Uh, some seed falls into soil that has lots of other types of seeds in it, it has weeds in it, and you know what a weed is, right? A weed is a plant you don't want, and it has a will to live. And so it grows up in this soil, and uh, it doesn't produce any fruit. But then you have the seed that falls into good soil. This is, of course, the, the parable of the sower. We're familiar with it. Jesus says there is spiritual truth behind it, the, the word of God, the, the message of the gospel is like the seed. He himself is the sower. The gospel hits what the human has been prepared to be. Uh, some people are so hard, the seed doesn't sink in. Some people are utterly shallow, it bursts up and it goes down. Some people are so taken up with the cares and joys of this life that no gospel fruit is developed, but some people have, by God's special providence, been designed to receive that seed when it shows up, and out of them comes a marvelous harvest. Well, that's the kind of teaching Jesus does all throughout the synoptics. If, if God had not encoded that spiritual truth into farming... Jesus would just be making stuff up. He'd be, be talking in allegories. But he's not. He's talking in parables. But in the Gospel of John, it's very different. There is almost nothing there that is a parable at all. Rather, he talks in symbolic sayings. And even in our opening verses here, you hear about the light shining in the darkness, and the darkness doesn't comprehend it. Jesus himself is going to talk like that. He's going to talk about, I am the light of the world. Um, 
men prefer darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Well, it calls us to ask the question, what is darkness and what is light? What does that symbolism mean? It's, it's talking in symbolic language. In the synoptics, you have Jesus do a number of miracles. I believe that if you take all the New Testament together, there are 39 separate miracles that the Lord Jesus Christ performs in his ministry. In the Gospel of John, John will follow seven great miracles, and he will make a point about who Jesus of Nazareth is out of each of these miracles. And uh, he calls them the great miracles. And in fact, he tells us what is the first miracle he ever did. But this arrangement about miracles is very significant to John, and you don't find it in the synoptics. In the synoptics, it's very clear that Jesus does a lot of his teaching in Aramaic, even to the point where in the synoptics, when you have the little girl raised from the dead, they give you the very Aramaic words that Jesus spoke, Talitha kume, little girl, rise up. In the Gospel of John, there are certain passages in John where Jesus has to be speaking Greek because he is making a verbal contrast in his teaching that only works in the Greek language. In this case, the one I'm thinking of is, Peter, do you love me? Uh, what, is, what is going on there between him and Peter doesn't happen in Aramaic, but it happens in Greek. So uh, there's a, a slightly different emphasis on language. Why is there a difference? Well, partly it is an illusion. When the life of Christ is taught from the average pulpit, there is an emphasis on Jesus was raised poor, his father was a carpenter, when he went to the temple and they gave the sacrifice for a child's birth, they did the, the sacrifice given for those in poverty. All of that is true, but Nazareth is less than a day's walk from one of the cities of the Decapolis. In Jesus' day, there was an economic consortium of ten cities in the northern Palestine region, you do read about the Decapolis. This is an economic alliance of these ten cities that actually made them fairly urban and very prosperous. And Jesus grew up within a day's walk of one of them. And in the Decapolis, Aramaic and Greek were spoken by the same person. I mean, everybody was generally bilingual. There is no reason to believe Jesus was not bilingual and that he didn't speak in Greek at various times. But nevertheless, there are some significant differences. Parables, as opposed to, to symbolic talking. Um, why is it that it seems like Jesus is talking differently? Well, in the synoptics, when Jesus of Nazareth is teaching, where do you generally see him teaching? What's going on? When the, when the Sermon on the Mount is given, Jesus has gotten out of the huge crowds, but he has brought a significant-sized crowd with him. He has asked 
for his disciples to come up the mountain, and he teaches them. In the synoptics, Jesus is teaching his parables to large groups of people. In the Gospel of John, if you're familiar with it, what scenes are there where Jesus of Nazareth is talking to a large group of people? There's one or two of them. But in almost every case, Jesus is talking to a hostile crowd that is angry with him. Um, If he is not talking to a crowd, and he doesn't talk to a crowd very often in John, he is talking to an individual. Nicodemus comes to him by night, and they have a uh, discussion. There is a woman at a well, and she is by herself. And the fact that she is by herself plays into what's going on there. Almost always in the Gospel of John, Jesus is talking to one or two people. When you talk to a group, do you talk in the same way as when you are talking to just one person and often to somebody you're very close to? Uh, Do you talk to your best friend the way you would address a business meeting? The answer is no, and that seems to be what's happening in John. John has written a gospel, and this is for the desire of our hearts, because we want the Lord Jesus Christ to know us intimately and and personally. John has significantly chosen those events where Jesus does that. When Jesus talks to an individual like you or me, what is he like? Well, he's warm, he's intimate, he is not preaching in parables where uh, he tells his disciples. Now, one of the reasons why I teach in parables is so the crowds won't get it. Um, Those who really want to will get it, but those on the outside just won't. But when he is with a Nicodemus He is very personal and very direct, and he talks directly to the person. When he is with the woman at the well, Jesus of Nazareth knows her intimately, knows all of her sins and depravities, but also knows that she is a creation of his Father, and he loves her intimately. He knows her just as he knows the grand bulk of humanity. That doesn't make Jesus different, It makes his ministry different. And one of the reasons why evangelicals so love the Gospel of John is because when we talk about God loving you and having a wonderful plan for your life, the Gospel of John shows that that's true. Jesus knows you. He knows everything about you. And he relates to you as an individual. There is also... And John will tell us this time and time again, a filling in of holes that the synoptics have left open. There is, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, a very large picture of Jesus' public ministry. But in John, we almost don't have any overlap. There's a little bit. But... 
it's all new material, and you will find things that the gospel writer, John the Apostle, tells you. I know you've already read the synoptics. In chapter 1, for instance, um, John later, after the verses we read, is going to say, when he sees Jesus, his cousin, coming, uh, I saw the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove, and I knew it was him I was supposed to herald. Well, John refers to it, but you don't actually see that event in the Gospel of John. That is a reference to the baptism of Jesus, which you have in the synoptics, and John refers to it, but you have to have read the other books to know what he's talking about. There is another one where John says, now this is the woman who anointed the feet of Jesus and washed his feet with her hair. Again, you go back into the Gospel of John, and you go looking for that story, it's not in the Gospel of John. It is in the synoptics. And so it is very clear that John is writing a gospel that is different from the synoptics on purpose. He is telling us new material. In the synoptics, we have seen Jesus as who he is, but this is, this is more. And this is for his intimate friends. This is for his disciples we are being brought in closer and deeper and more warmly to the heart of Christ. The upshot of this is that there is no water whatsoever to say the Gospel of John is not historical because it's got a different focus. What are the focuses of the Gospels? Well, if you read Matthew, kingship comes up a lot. It starts off with a chronology of the life of Christ, a, a, a listing of his, of his ancestors. It starts with Abraham and David and then goes down. Matthew is about showing Jesus as the son of David, which the apostle Paul mentions as a very important part of the gospel in the beginning of the book of Romans. If in Romans uh, you think that the gospel is presented in its most organized way, you're probably right. And in the first couple of verses of Romans, Paul actually tells you what he's going to tell you. And when he is summarizing the gospel in just a few verses, this is what he says. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, so that's what this is about, and this is what these verses are about, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. If you are sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with someone who has not heard it, my guess is you're probably not going to mention that Jesus is the son of David. That's not the sort of thing that Americans are really thinking about. Uh, it's not going to come up. But if you are Jewish, 
you know that the Christ has to be in a certain family. He has to be born of the line of David. And if he's not, then it's not the Christ. And so the Gospel of Matthew goes out of its way to show the kingly aspects of Jesus because he is the son of David and he sits on the throne of David as the king of Israel. That is Matthew's emphasis. In the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel begins with the good news of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. That's the first verse. When Mark tells us that, from the moment go, we know who Jesus is. He is the Christ, the promised prophet, priest, and king. He is the Son of God. But after Mark says that to us, an emphasis develops in all the historical accounts where those whom Jesus is preaching to begin to ask the question, who is this? What is this? A new teaching and with authority. Again and again and again in the Gospel of Mark, the people aren't quite sure who Jesus is. And this will come to a pinnacle in the middle of the book where Jesus will take his disciples out of the land of Israel and spend some time with them, uh, really training them, And he will ask them, now, who do men say that I am? And Peter will say, well, some say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets or you're John the Baptist. And then Jesus will say to him, but who do y'all say that I am? And Jesus will say, I mean, Peter will say, you are the Christ of God. And Jesus won't deny it. And we've been told that from the very first verse. But Jesus will then tell Peter not to tell anybody. And the focus of the book will now change. You will see Jesus begin to talk about the need to become a ransom for many. He will talk about the cross. He'll talk about the death. He'll talk about the betrayal of of the Jewish people. We move into the cross and ultimately to the resurrection. And as we go, the one thing that doesn't change is you still have people asking the question, who is this? And none of them get it quite right until you are at the cross, and at the side of the cross, there is somebody who gets it right. It is a non-Jew, it is a Roman centurion, this pagan man with no true religion at all says, surely this was the Son of God. The question of his identity has run all the way through Mark, and People have been challenged to figure out who he is based on what he's done and what he's taught. And the one who gets it is a pagan Roman. He gets the right answer, and what comes next is the resurrection and the message of the gospel. That is Mark's emphasis. He challenges us to really ask the question, who is this? And and that works all the way through the book. And you don't find that in Matthew. You don't find that in Luke. Luke is written by a Greek physician. When you begin to look at what Luke is focusing about Jesus, you realize that you are looking at the picture of what a true human being should be. Luke takes the question, 
what would a sinless man, a good man, a true man really look like? And everything in his gospel shows you that Jesus the Christ is that. And that's not an accident. In the Greek world, the question, what is a good man, has been driving their philosophy for centuries. They, they want to know what is real goodness. What does that look like? Well, Luke tells you it looks like Jesus because he's God's son. He's also fully human, and Jesus is what a real man, a good man, is supposed to be like. That's Luke's emphasis. What is John's emphasis? Well, much like the, the images of the angels that are right at the throne of God, where they have four faces, you know, one is the face of a man, one is the face of an ox, uh, one is the face of a lion, and one is the face of an eagle, uh, John is the eagle. The lion represents kingship, Jesus is the king in Matthew, uh, Mark focuses on what Jesus doing things, and the ox is a beast of burden. Luke focuses on the perfect humanity of Jesus, and you've got a human face. The eagle, throughout time, has been sort of a symbol of the divine. And when we get to the Gospel of John, it's about as far as you can get from the Gospel of Mark on this issue. In Mark, you have people asking who he is, and Jesus is uh, doing things and teaching things, and you make your decision up. But in John, Jesus is right with us. He is intimate with us. He is talking to us. He is not teaching in such a way as to hide anything because he is talking directly to us as individuals. And from the moment go in John, Jesus is is divine. No hiding it at all. And that is listed under the term the Word. In the beginning was the Word. If you are Jewish and you have grown up in Jewish religion, when somebody says the Word of God there are really two things that jump to your mind. The first one is creation. The Bible begins with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And how did he do that? Well, he said, let there be, and there was. The word of God is a creative force unto itself because God is absolutely sovereign. God doesn't have to use means at all. If God says, let there be, then there is, which means the Word of God itself is the creating principle. And if you are Jewish and you hear about the Word, you're going to think about that. This is God's creation power. But more than that, you are going to think about Every time when you read the prophets, it says, the word of the Lord came, the word of the Lord came, you're going to think about the prophetic ministry because the prophets directly received the word of the Lord. 
And oftentimes, the text doesn't tell you how that happens, just that it did. The word of the Lord came to the prophet Jeremiah. Go tell my people this. Well, you know that when God speaks, creative things happen. When the word of the Lord comes to a prophet, God is releasing his power into the world through the prophet, and often he is releasing his uh, warning and rebuke through the prophet. It is amazing to me in, in pockets of the Christian church today that believe that the gift of prophet is still active among us, that they rejoice when a prophecy is given. You know, you're in a Pentecostal church, and uh, someone stands up and says, I have a word of prophecy. Very rarely is that word, you have offended me, says the Lord. Your sins have reached a high heaven. I am tired of bearing with you. Uh, No more go to the communion table, sing no songs to me. Do righteousness, pursue justice. That, that doesn't get said. Rather, the prophecy is always, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, the word of the Lord, when it comes to a prophet, rarely is like that. Rather, it is God bringing warning and rebuke, and there's going to be danger. Uh, so, if you read about the word, and you have grown up in true religion... There's going to be an element of danger here, too, as well, because the word is rebuking. One thing that you can guarantee, though, is the concept of the word is going to grab you and hold you, because the word of God is everything. When God speaks, it happens, and the entirety of our relationship to God is based on what God says, so this is utterly important. If you are a pagan Greek or a pagan Roman who has borrowed Greek culture, you're going to think about something different, but something very related. In Greek thought, there is polytheism. You have the gods. You have Apollo and Zeus and Hermes, uh, Artemis, and all those good people. They are the gods, and they are considered divine But if you know anything about the stories connected to these beings, you know that these divine beings aren't really all that divine. If you read the stories, they are all too human. They have human passions and human pettiness. They may be God of this or God of that, but all that seems to imply is more power. It doesn't seem to imply any sort of higher moral virtue or even knowledge. And so in the the Greek world, there was a growing understanding, especially among the philosophers, that there has to be something more divine than the gods. If Zeus and Apollo and Demetrius are it, if they are the pinnacle of what is, then it's a very low pinnacle. There must be something above that. In fact, they began to develop an understanding of philosophy that there must be stair steps of of relation. There must be something above the gods that relates to the gods. The gods relate to men. Men relate to animals. Animals relate to plants. 
And you can kind of relate to the one step above you and the one step below you. But there has to be something above the gods because the gods are very petty. But what is that? Well, the philosophers said, you know, uh, when you look at the world, there seems to be a pattern and an order to it. Even without divine revelation, the, the thinkers of the world have looked at creation and said, this is not accidental because if it were accidental, there'd be gaps in it. There would be places where the natural laws don't fit together. But there is a perfect orderliness and a perfect sense of balance in the natural laws. Creation adheres perfectly. That suggests not only pattern and order, but also reason and purpose. There is a reason to life. There is a reason we live. There's a reason we die. Uh, Something is happening that's meaningful, and it's encoded into creation. And it was certainly not the Greek gods who put it there. Because Zeus and Apollos and such are way too petty to be able to do that. This is something far more grand and beautiful than they could do. Well, the philosophers began to say, let's call this highest reality, which we don't know much about, the word. The logos. It's a Greek word. And used in philosophy, it talks about the order, the meaning, the purpose of what is. And so, if you are pagan or if you're Jewish, when John the Apostle writes, in the beginning was the Word, it grabs hold of you because both of you know ultimate reality is being talked about. This is the most important thing we can hear about. So, what are we going to hear about the Word of God. Well, it was with God in the beginning. The Jew says, okay, yep, that's right, because in the beginning God talks and everything comes together. Uh, God had a purpose for life and he spoke it into existence, so sure. The Greek goes, well, what? Because the Greek actually pictures no beginning and no end to time or the world. It is as circular in their thought as in Hinduism. You're used to the idea time begins and time ends, but uh, in a lot of the world, that's not assumed. And among the Greeks, it's not assumed. So immediately, you're kind of confronted that there was a beginning, and the Word was in the beginning. The Word was God. Well, again, as a Greek or a Jew, you kind of say, well, it makes sense. There's an order, a purpose in all of creation. Uh, Obviously, that comes from the mind of God. He gives the order. He gives the purpose. So it reflects his divine character. So sure, uh, the word was God because your thoughts are you, right? I mean, what you think about, what you you desire, uh, that has to do with who you are. So sure, in the beginning was the Word, Uh, the Word was with God, the Word was God, He was in the beginning. It is a simple turn of phrase, it doesn't strike us with the force that it ought to, 
In the beginning was God. Only God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you are a, a Jewish believer, you have been taught that all your life. The only thing that existed in the beginning was God. You're not wrong. But he was in the beginning with God. If you are a Greek, you believe that ultimate thought and truth, that's the ideals. That's what Plato calls the ideals. They are unreachable categories. They are thoughts. They are systems of thinking. The gods are individuals, and they're petty, so the word can't be a person. The word has to be a concept. John says, you're incorrect. The purpose, the pattern that reality has, it's based on a he, a person. A person who existed as God and yet was separate from God in the beginning, he was in the beginning. It is a reference to the star of our book. It is a reference to Jesus Christ, which John will finally use his name in verse 14, but there was a person with God who was also God, and there is only one God, and we're going to talk about who he is. He is the reason and purpose, and uh, everything about creation is focused on him. We are talking about a person who is the ultimate reality, a person who gives meaning to everything. Human beings are fascinated by the beginning. If you uh, delve into science fiction at all, the concept of the beginning of time, origins, the, the whole genre just, just spills it in every direction. Carl Sagan waxes philosophically and looks worshipful when he talks about the cosmos and billions and billions of years because that idea takes hold of him and it's, it's worshipful. It is, it is what gives meaning to life. There is something in us that wants to know about the beginning. There is something in us that needs to know about the beginning because we are the product, ultimately, of the beginning. Everything that started at the beginning leads to us, and we are in a train, and we want to really know what happened in the beginning. John says, let me tell you what happened in the beginning. There was the Word. It was the pattern and plan of God for all creation. It was what creation would be shaped about, and in fact, there's nothing that is created that the Word did not help create. So the Word is not created, because it can't be. If there's anything created, the Word was involved in its creation, so it's not a created thing, but it's a person. God patterns reality for a man. 
God gives purpose and direction to all things rooted in this person. He is not made because everything that's made has been made through him. But he is a person and it is all about and through him. The beginning is about Jesus Christ. When God says, let us make man in our own image, when it's plural in Genesis, and we don't know why it's plural because we don't know who he's talking to, John says, let me tell you who he's talking to. He's talking to Jesus Christ. Let us make man in his own image. If you're Jewish and you hear that we're talking about the Word and the Word is a person, you're going to be, uh, you're going to be defensive. Because when the Word of God comes into the world, the Word of God rebukes you. It is a statement from God saying, my people have turned from me, They are rebellious. They are seeking their own ways. Um, The Word is coming into reality. The Word is coming into the created order. And if you're Jewish, it means God has a contention with you. As we go through the Gospel of John, we're going to see when Jesus talks to large groups of people, it is always identified as, quote, the Jews, Not the Jewish leaders, which is the way modern translations want to translate it. It is the Jews. And it never goes well for them. In chapter 8, for instance, they declare he has a demon, and they try to pick up rocks to stone him to death. So uh, the Jewish visible church is going to come off very badly. But what do you expect? God sends the word when he is rebuking his people, God sends the word when he is creating something. Jesus is the word. And he comes to that which is his own, but his own don't receive him. What does that tell you about his own? They are at a point of rebellion. They are at a point of hatred for their God. They are at a point where The fig tree that represents the Jewish nation is beyond ever giving fruit again, and it's going to be cut down. The word of God is coming into the world. But the word is the word. If you're looking for guidance, you're going to look to the word. If you are uh, looking for a reason, you're going to look to the word. If you are looking for the order of life, you're going to look to the Word. It's not a philosophy. It's not a man-made way of thinking. All of what you see, hear, smell, touch, and taste, all of it is rooted in this person, Jesus the Christ. If you want to avoid God's wrath, you will listen to the Word. The Word will come and rebuke who you are. 
But if you receive the rebuke, God will receive you. Every bit of meaning you are looking for in the world is rooted in him. He was with God. He was God. He was in the beginning. So we have reached, in a way, the pinnacle of the Gospels. In Matthew, he is the king of God's chosen people, and we are God's chosen people. We are the real Israel. He is our king. He is the Messiah who, by his words and deeds, redeems us. He becomes our ransom in Mark. He is what humanity is supposed to look like in Luke. But in John, he is God himself. Now, he's all those things in all those books, but these are the emphasis. You cannot understand who Jesus the Christ is unless you understand Everything is rooted in him. Everything came from him. There was an actual creation, and Jesus was, in fact, working side by side with his Father to create that. You can't understand anything without knowing what John is talking about. It's the Word. And as we begin the Gospel of John, uh, it seemed only right to emphasize that where we're used to John being the warm and tender gospel, meeting us individually, and all of that is absolutely true. It is, in paradox, also the gospel that shows us most clearly this is what is infinitely larger than you. This is what is meaning and gives meaning to your life. This is not optional, and this is whether you're rebuked by God or not. This is everything. Jesus is the divine Logos, the Word. Nothing was made without him. Everything is about him. There is nothing more important than what we are about to look at.